My name is Perdita Felician. If you're funky, you can call me Perdition. I am a retired 100-meter hurdler, and I now spend my time as a freelance broadcaster, a keynote speaker, and I'm working on my first book. So one day soon, hopefully, I will be able to call myself an author. Wow. Congratulations. Thank you very much. Perdition? Well, it's just easier because my name gets butchered and chopped and screwed so many different ways that okay. perdition is just a really... Is that an original? Is that your proper? No, I was actually called that by accident when someone introduced me once. No way. So <laughs> I just mock it now. It's like, okay, Perdita Felician. Okay, what? how could you blend those two things? Perdition. Perdition. And he fumbled it. He felt really bad, but I love it. I think it's all right. Is Felician French? It is French, yes, but okay. we're not necessarily like fluent in French or anything no, like that. No, nothing. Yeah. Parents not... No, they're from St. Lucia, which was, you know, an island like many in the West Indian that was colonized, you know, by the French and the okay. British. And they fought over it forever and ever. And I have a French last and name. And that's why I have a French last yes. name. Yes. Fair enough. There we go. Born in the schwa. Yeah, I was born in the schwa, man. It's not the dirty schwa, is it? Or is it only parts of the schwa we yeah, call it? That? You know what? I, I, I grew up in the schwa the first nine years of my life. Okay. And then uh, probably the first eight, eight years, actually. And uh, when I was eight and a half we moved to pickering ontario so that's my official hometown pickering is pickering, pickering is ontario yeah that is my home that is my claim they we are stuck together me and pickering ontario we are and you've stayed out there like now you're an ajaxer yeah we're an ajax my husband and i but um god i spent a lot of my career out in the states so i was in the yeah. states uh, i left i left for university of illinois when i was 19 so january of 2000 and i got back 16 years later so 2016 i kind oh, wow. of slowly am making my way back home well let's 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 start way back when yeah uh, I, I guess when when you were in, still in, in oshawa um how did you how did you get to running was mom and dad athletes were you guys always doing yeah. sports yeah no my um my mom immigrated from saint lucia and so she didn't know very much about organized sport okay so i was at Glen Grove public school in grade three in pickering mm -hmm. and my gym teacher was mrs mrs arthur's and i don't know if you'll remember the canada fitness yeah, uh, yeah. units yeah, yeah. The gold bronze silver yeah exactly and if you're really horrible you get a participation pin mm -hmm. that means uh, you probably didn't hit all the standards right but you know thanks for coming out thanks little boy for yeah thanks for participating exactly yeah you never want to get that no so um in my grade three class in my grade three gym class i was the only one to get the excellence badge yes but my yeah my uh my coach mrs arthur's or my gym teacher rather um she was, was giving out all the awards and then she made everyone sit down and then she kind of announced this one person is the only one and she made like a special moment and she announced this you know person got the excellence badge and we we're all sitting around like i'm looking around like who the hate yeah who is this phenomenal person and then she says my name and i felt like i had won the oscars again knew nothing about the oscars back then but it felt like it was my moment yeah and uh i, I was really you know really excited and encouraged and she said you need to try it for the track and field team Knew nothing about track. My mother knew nothing about track. So I went out for the track and field team, made it in the 100, the 4x100 meter relay, and the long jump. And the wow. funny thing is, when I went to tell my mom about it, she, um, I ran through the door. I burst through the door because I was so excited. I had the permission slip in my hand, and I burst through the door. My mom was like vacuuming or sweeping or doing something that she was doing. And I'm like, Mom, Mom, guess what? She's like, yeah, what's going on? She was like a little nervous. She wasn't sure, like, uh -oh. was it good news or bad news? Like, <laughs> what are you so excited about? And then she's like, yeah, what's going on? She's like, I made it for the team. Like, I made it for the team. And she has no idea what this team is. Like, she is like, um, oh, great, honey. Yeah, fantastic. Had no idea it was track and field. Because, you know, in St. Lucia, like, she didn't grow up with organized sport, uh -huh. right? And I was the first of her children. 
to really be in- introduced to like organized sport in, in, in the, you know, in the system, the system the way it is in Canada. Mm. Wow. Um, and how did you, so as I was, it, it was funny, I was reading a bunch of things to learn more about yeah. you to figure out questions. Um, you hated the hurdles. I did. Yeah. Um, so tell me, you know, you're 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 in grade three. You get and the excellence. That's the red one, isn't it? That's the red with the gold and the silver yeah. trim. It's fantastic. Do you still have it? Hundred percent. I still have oh it. Oh my! You know, I should probably take all of them and like just iron them because they were the 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 badges, right? So you could probably yeah. sew them and iron them onto your yeah, yeah, yeah. to your arm. Like we didn't know anything about that, but I'm like, I should bring that back. Put it on a denim jacket or something. I just, think you should. Yeah. Turn that into would, a thing. That would be awesome. I'd be the coolest person around. Tell me when when did you first discover hurdles? Uh, I was in grade seven. Okay. And um, I just basically got dragged to the start line, like the sign-up sheet in the gym class by my relay teammates. Because remember, in grade three, grade four, grade five, and grade six, mm-hmm. I had the same relay team, same four girls. And you couldn't try the hurdles until grade six. Okay. So in grade six, they kind of wanted me to try it because yeah. I was doing really good at track. But I'm like, yeah, no, don't need it. Not interested. Because I was doing volleyball and basketball as well. Sure. And so in grade seven, they're like, you're too good not to try it with us. So they dragged me and I signed up and, and yeah. I started. So, you know, I had, I can't say I had instant success. I mean, I was third at an area meet. I, you know, I did well, but I didn't love the event. I didn't naturally take to it at all. Uh-huh. And uh, it wasn't until, my goodness, I had stopped track for about two years in high school. I took it back up again in grade 10 and um, and the club coach that I had reintroduced me to the hurdles after probably almost two or three years. And he only trained me as a hurdler and I wanted to be a sprinter. I wanted to be a long jumper. That was my yeah. that was my thing. And he basically saw me in that very probably the second practice I ever went back in grade 10. He's like, OK, he called me PD. He's like, PD, you're a hurdler now. And from then on, he trained me as such. And I hated it. There was a time when you. You were in grade school. I think grade going to high school. Yeah, where you just stopped. That was it. Yeah, like those stopped were everything. Like yeah, no athletics at all. Nothing at all. What was years. it? I got beat really bad in grade eight. I remember. So from grade three, basically from grade seven, so that's almost five years. I was undefeated, like always won. Yeah. And then in grade eight, a girl who had never raced against before moved to our area, so she was now in our district. Uh-huh. And, um, she beat me in a hundred meter race like my grade eight year you know i'm the bell of the ball i've established this reputation my teammates are on the bleachers you know they used to call me the bullet i had never lost so i'd never really tasted defeat yeah and i was so embarrassed when this girl beat my tail what place did you finish i got second okay but again i'm the queen like i'm the bullet from glengrove public school i don't get beat and here's this young girl showing up do you remember her name yeah i do do you want me to tell you who it is yeah She's pretty amazing who she is. Her name is Shelly Ann Brown. She is a silver medalist in women's bobsled for Team Canada. She was that? From, the, yes, that was who whooped my tail in grade eight and made me quit track. Thank you, Shelly Ann Brown. Thank wait, you very on. much. Hold on. Because she, she, she did summer and then she did winter, um, right? She, you're thinking of Felicia George, I believe. Okay. But Shelly Ann Brown won a silver behind Kaylee Humphreys. Mm. Kaylee Humphreys won gold. And her sled um, with Helen Upperton mm. won silver in Vancouver 2010. Okay. So that was a huge, huge moment. And so um, you see how talented she is, right? Wow. Clearly able to do that. But back then, she's the one who gave me my first 
taste of humble pie and I hated the bitter so taste. So you almost quit. I did quit. You did quit. 100% I quit. I quit for two years because those are really formidable years, right? 13, well, 14, 15, and 16. Yeah. So it took And me, no one could get you back in. My mom tried and that's that's why I went back because my mom tried. She was on me. She was on me. And I say, I say to mothers, all the mothers listening to me now, nag your children. They will, mothers, you will call it encouragement. Yeah. You will call it, you know, I'm helping you realize your dream. Call it what it is. It's called nagging. And my yeah. mother was very, very good at it. Still is. And she's the one who basically for two years was like, come on, P, come on, P, you know, just run for mommy, run for mommy. And I used to always, I had this saying when I was a kid. I'm like, you, why don't you run, man? Why don't you run, man? <laughs> I, put, <laughs> I put the word man at the end of anything, everything. And uh, basically because I couldn't take it anymore, I went back. Hmm. Yeah. What what role did um I think one of your I don't know if it was a teacher or a coach, Pamela? Pamela yeah, Masales? Pamela Masales. Yeah. Pamela she cornered me. My mom was really chipping away at me and she cornered me basically that grade ten year. Hmm. And uh in the lockers in the one of the lockers sorry, in one of the hallways beside a locker, she got right up into my face. Wow. Yeah, and she I, again she was the head of um phys ed at my high school, primary mm-hmm. secondary school. Shout out to all the uh pumas out there she um was the gym coach and she was also the track and field coach i didn't really know her she was never my gym coach Mm -hmm. and she basically got in my face in the hallway and said look little girl i know who the heck you are i know (laughs) that you were super good in elementary school Mm -hmm. and i think you need to come out and try out for track and field yeah and i was like "Mm, yeah okay yeah sure whatever i gave her the okie doke right yeah no really intention to do it but between you know that approach from her my mom already riding me all the time i kind of thought you know what do i have to lose yeah but there was really no people don't i guess well don't understand like so why did you go back if there was no passion to it i was very competitive mm-hmm. but being very competitive and and i was also naturally good and having a passion and a joy and a love for something are very different very different yeah yeah, yeah i love to win yeah i love to compete yeah but i didn't necessarily like love this whole and have and see a future in it not at all oh wow yeah not at all. so did you you're not yet running the hurdles Right, because I no, I hadn't because I'd quit. But you that, quit. yeah. But when I went back in grade ten, yeah, I had success. You... Yeah, I had. I did the um, the four by one relay, and okay. I did the one hundred meters. Okay. Shelly Ann was there too, because remember we're the same oh, age now. Oh, now you're in the same high school. Yeah, but remember I had exa- no. She's at a different. She's at Dunbarton. So, okay. but we're still in the same pool, right? We're still at Offsa, the Ontario uh, High School yeah, Championships. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So this girl who I thought okay, she, you know, had left behind is now my one of the arch rivals because right? oh she had been running goodness. she'd been competing yeah yeah so um that very first offs in the 100 meters she won mm-hmm. and i got i think i got third yeah i maybe got third to her but i wasn't scared of her anymore you know i wasn't scared of Why her not? anymore i think i was just a little bit more mature okay i actually tasted what i could do with very sh- with, you know I, I, at that point i had only been practicing maybe a few months and i'd been off for a few years yeah and i was third in you know all of ontario so for those for context for you guys offset is like the olympics mm-hmm. of high school track and field in ontario it's like yeah. a big deal so when i saw i got third i was like oh okay like it kind of just really gave me a little bit more motivation like mm-hmm. okay i could do this and i matured frankly i matured a little bit more yeah yeah um and what made you continue then hmm i think it was my competitive drive i think i was very very competitive it was also um a social thing for me it was a very social aspect to do Mm -hmm. um 
my mother, you know, worked, you know, very, very hard. And so we had to basically manage and really police ourselves. Thank God her children were all very, very well to, you know, well mannered. But for me, it was an outlet. I could go to, you know, track and field meets. I could hang out with my friends. I could, you know, it was just a way not to necessarily go home and wash the dishes and do my homework. <laughs> like it, you know, it was a way to kind of put those things off. And I just, I, I thoroughly enjoyed like lining up and, competing really so the passion came back then i would say the i would say the hunger to win and i like the attention of it that's really uh, what i'm i like more than anything okay. so it was great as long as i was winning and yes. thankfully i was winning and you were <laughs> yeah i was winning but i can't say there's a pure love because even when he only he refused to coach me as a sprinter and as a long jumper i was stuck being a hurdler right yeah and so the only thing that really kept me going was I could do my main hurdles and then he'd throw me in the 100 meters as well. So okay. that really kept me going. But the minute they would say, you know, junior girls to the 80 meter hurdle start line, I would abs I would be absentee. I'd have to, you know, I got to go ladies room or I got to do whatever. I didn't want to necessarily go and do you the still, hurdles. You still didn't want to do the hurdles. I didn't enjoy them. I didn't enjoy them. I thought they were hazardous. I thought they were dangerous. I didn't get it. I wasn't interested. Yeah. But clearly my coach then, um, my club coach in grade 10, who reintroduced me to the hurdles, yeah. clearly saw, oh my God, this chick is built, yeah. is built for this event. We need to like make sure she doesn't fall off and doesn't stop doing this. And so I really owe a lot to him for having that kind wow. of vision. When did you start loving the hurdles? Or is that a... Th no, or good question. I eventually did. Yeah. I eventually did. So uh, initially what happened is in grade 10 and grade 11, I started getting heavily recruited by uh, American universities. And I knew wow. I, had, I had no idea about scholarships. Mm -hmm. And so they were sending these scholarship offers to our house. And my mother was like, you're oh, getting scholarship offers. Yeah. Full blown rides to um, God. I eventually went to the University of Illinois, but, you know, I Stanford, um, Southern California, Iowa, um, Rice University, University of Houston, you name it, like all these universities had your parents ever been to university no it was the i i am the first in my in my family's lineage to ever get that higher must education have been huge it was it was at the time and it still it still is it's like whoa i've kind of opened the floodgates but um was there pressure to say okay i better do good at this thing now like my fan this is like a yeah it's, it's gone from you running races to now this is a yeah. family thing that you are now yeah representing i think i the only way I can answer that, yes, but the only way I can answer that question is to show you the evolution of it. So when those scholarship offers came, mm -hmm. neither my mother and I understood what they were. Do you okay. see what I mean? Because no one in my family had ever gone to mm. university. No one had ever really been an athlete. So these packages are coming and they're recruiting me. Yeah. And I um I don't know really what they are. Yeah. And um so I remember my mom, my mom read one um, scholarship offer and the scholarships back then I think they're around maybe $25,000 a year or a semester or something like that mm -hmm. and my mom came into the room because I was getting all these letters and she said P I'm so sorry I'm sorry and I'm like mom what's going on and she's like you're getting all these offers to go and run in the states but I can't afford it she didn't oh, understand wow. that these were actually going to be paid on my behalf. She thought that's what she, because they're all addressed oh. to her, right? She thought she had to pay these $25,000 wow. is how she's interpreting it. So she already knows she can't afford that, yeah, right? Like, sure. my, you know, we're a low-income family. Just we didn't have it. Um, so to answer your question with that kind of context, when I finally did make the decision to go now, mm -hmm. yeah, there's some weight that comes with that. You better not mess it up. You better not, you know, make a fool of yourself mm -hmm. because you are, you're an example to your community. And, you know, I, I, 
I keep telling you the story about how my mother really kind of really encouraged me and nagged me <laughs> to do this. Like, had she not really been on me or just kind of let me do whatever my teen brain wanted to do, mm-hmm. I would I really would have never gone back to track and field. That's the honest truth. But I look at the trajectory of my life and all the things that I've been able to achieve and, wow. and, and you know, even fall short on, she she made me realize and see, you know, uh, much further than she ever she ever did. Hmm. Yeah. What what was that? I'm I'm really curious about you know listening to this relationship that you and your mom have. Yeah. Um, when you decided to go and you picked your school, mm-hmm. um, your your mom must have been floored. She must have been so happy. Yeah. Oh God. You know what? She kept asking me, because here's the thing about getting heavily recruited by American universities. Back then, they could call you every week. There's so many different rules now with social media and phones and stuff, but they would call your house every week. So I had droves of schools calling me, and it it got very exhausting. I was so naive because I didn't know really what I was getting into. And um, when I finally did make a decision, my mother was always asking me, where are you going, where are you going, where are you going? And it just felt like a lot of pressure. Mm. I know she just wanted to know. Yeah. And finally to get off, off my back, I hadn't told anybody, but I said, I'm going to pick the University of Illinois. Mind you, the universities are now are still calling me, but I haven't told anyone my decision because yeah. I'm kind of shy because, you know, in the year and a half that I'm being recruited, you also have a relationship with these coaches, right? Like they know that you're taking the SAT. They know that you went to this track meet. They know your mom's name. They know your siblings. Like So it's a year of courting and wooing. Yeah. So now all of a sudden I've made a decision, but I have to tell all these coaches, by the way, you're so nice and... You know, you're fantastic, but I'm not going to your school. I'm not going to the University of Southern California. Sorry. So how do you say that? I couldn't. But I told my mother. So yeah. guess what my mother does? Oh, no. Oh, yes. So Everyone who calls, she's not coming to your school. Essential, well, the first thing that she did was she told Gary Winkler, who was my coach at the University of Illinois, that I was coming before I ever had a chance to tell him. Oh, my. So he's still recruiting me, right? But the minute my mom calls and says, oh, Padita's not home tonight. But guess what? Mr. Winkler, Coach Winkler, she's coming there. She's coming there. That was my mother. And I didn't know that story until probably my third year in university. Wow. And he told me, I had been at the university three years now. He's like, do you know your mom told me that you were you were coming here? So even when I was calling you all those weeks before you officially told me, I knew you were coming. And I, Why'd you pick Illinois? They had um, a great stable of other hurdlers for me to train with. Mm-hmm. So I still didn't love the hurdles, but that was my main event, right? That's what earned me my scholarship. So yeah. that's what I was being recruited in. And uh, other schools didn't really offer that. Gary, I, when I looked and I, I you know, I, thank God I had this kind of vision. I saw his, how, how he was able to uh, train athletes, right? I saw what they started with, their time when they started with him and mm. their time when they ended with him. Oh, wow. He also had a very high graduation, graduation rate. So if an athlete came there and they were on scholarship, they actually got their degree. Mm. And that was really important to me because that's one thing my mom always drilled. She Before I left for school, she's like, Padit, they can they can take your, um, they, you might hurt yourself and break your leg and they might take your scholarship or they might, you, you might not be able to run. But she's like, whatever you put in your brain, mm. right? And she'd point to her, her brain. She's like, nobody can take that. So she's like, make sure you get your school books right and you do it the right way. So that was always in me. Yeah. And um, so that was a big deal. And also the distance between... Pickering, Ontario, and Illinois is, you know, a 10-hour ride, a 25-hour Greyhound ride, if you want to know. <laughs> and it's much easier than California. It's much easier than, than Texas. It's much easier than South Carolina. Yeah. But, um, you know, economics were a barrier for me, so I mm. couldn't necessarily be able to fly home from a faraway school. I wouldn't be able to necessarily have my, you know, my um, my holidays yeah. away. But if I could scratch enough money, maybe I could get on a Greyhound and get home in a day. Right. Yeah. So it just all those things made sense. Wow. Yeah. 
Um, so as as you're choosing, you go to Illinois. Yes. Um, I'm curious. Are are you even thinking beyond that? Like, yeah. NCAA finals. Are yeah. you thinking about potential national team? Are you thinking yeah. about worlds and Olympics mm-hmm. and and things like that? It's a really good question, and the the frank question is no. Mm. So, as a someone who's 37 now, and and I was 19 at the time, so it's almost been two, 20 years. I um I had no idea how good I was. So my first really? NC- no idea. So my first NCAA meet. So I because I took so long to accept a scholarship, I did start in August and September like most university students start. Okay. I started in January. So I missed a whole entire semester because I honestly didn't think I was going to accept a scholarship because I thought it would be too much of a burden on my family to be away. I also thought it would be just too far. Wow. And so I I turned a lot of them down. And in fact, I turned down the University of Illinois while he was recruiting me. Mm. And um, so the reason I accepted was because my mom kept saying to me, like, just go. We'll be fine. We'll be fine. Like, it's okay. Because I really felt like I was my mother's protector. I really felt like I was, you know, one of those, you know, with my younger siblings, especially I was an example. So to leave and go to another country made no sense. So to tell you the truth, I didn't really know what I was getting into. So when I when I got to the University of Illinois in January, remember, I'd missed a whole entire semester. I made the NCAAs. And I made the final, and I was the only final, the only freshman to make an NCAA final uh, in history. I was also the fastest NCAA finalist uh, freshman ever. So no freshman had ever run as fast as I had run in that final. I was fifth. Mm -hmm. And so we're, we're, I can't wait. It's the end of the year, right? Because it's the end of school. I can't wait to get back home because it's my, you know, I've only been there one semester. I'm homesick. I can't wait for this NCAA crap to be done and I can get home. NCAA crap. Yeah. And then mind you, I loved it. Because remember, I keep talking about loving the tension and the the high of winning and doing well. I love that. But the, the having, you know, foresight, no. So we get to this little airport in um, in North Carolina. NCAAs are done. I'm fifth. Don't really get what I've done, but mm-hmm. Gary Winkler, my coach, um, oh God, he's like 6'6", six, six, and I'm like 5'5". Five, five. So I remember him crouching down. I'm sitting in my seat in the airport. I had my you know Sony Walkman on, and I just can't. All I'm thinking of is, yes, I get to go home now. Yeah. And he's like, um, P, I need to talk to you. And he, uh, he has me take off my headphones. He's like, do you know that you just ran the Canadian Olympic standard? Didn't even know there was an Olympics in um, in Sydney in 2000 in mm. about five months' time. Had no clue. So this is probably June of 2000. The Olympics yeah. are in September of 2000. And I was like, oh, that's cool. Cool, right? And all I want to do is put back on my headset yeah. and start bobbing. I, I want to go back to yeah, Pickering. I, exactly. I don't know what that means. But. Wow. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't get it. So I made my Olympic team at 19. Didn't. Didn't know anything about it. Went to the Olympics. It was amazing. It was crazy. But I didn't have vision. And again, I still i am not in love, in love, in love with sport that way. I fall in love with it in 2001. And the only reason I fell in love with sport was Canada was hosting the World Championships. It was in Edmonton. Uh-huh. And um, I really wanted to make the hurdle final. And I didn't make the 100 meter hurdle final. I missed it by one spot. Yeah. And when I got, I was so dejected that on my way through the mix zone, I said, for how many years you've been shortchanging yourself? Because what I'm not admitting to you guys is I would like, I was very talented. That's what really got me by. I was also very strong academically, right? So I was an honor, honor roll student. But I, I would cut corners in practice. So if Gary said, okay, you guys are on your own for morning practice. Be here at 6.30 a.m. Here's the workout. I would cut things out. Maybe I, I'm supposed to do three by 20 push-ups. You're one of those kids. Yeah, because, yeah. Because you're physically this. talented. 
Yes, but because I didn't love it, like I didn't, I didn't care enough, right? Mm. Like I'll, I'll do, like when I'm at the start line, I'm all in. But in practice and other things, why do I need to, right? Which is what I talk about with the passion. I didn't really have that. So when I didn't make that final in 2001, I had looked at all the years from even grade 10, where I just did enough. I just did enough on the start line. I gave you everything, but off of the field of play, I didn't give you everything. And when I was so embittered about not making that final because I thought I was good enough to make it, again, I'm kind of high in my own head. I thought, Perdita, what happens if you work and work and work and see what happens at the next World Championships? Well, mm. of course, the next World Championships were in Paris in 2003. But mm. from 2001, when I didn't make that, that World Championship final, and I knew I was kind of like just kind of going through the motions with, with the sport, I dotted every I and crossed every T for those next two years, mm. right? And that was the game changer for me, you know, in, in Paris two years later. My attitude had changed. And that's the, that's when I fell in love with my event because it's friggin' hard. And that's when I <laughs> I kind of stopped cutting corners. Wow. Mm -hmm. And so what, what did you see out of yourself as you started to, I guess, become disciplined? You know what? I... I don't know that I was, I was very disciplined, but I turned into someone who was totally opposite of who I had been. So I, because I was already ultra competitive, mm -hmm. but now beyond the field of play, I'm now taking this very seriously. I was no nonsense. So I was very difficult to, um, I wouldn't say to be around, but I expected a lot from my teammates. So now all of a sudden I went from like, you know, shucking and jiving and carrying on in practice with some of my friends to now all of a sudden this next year, Perdita is now like, no, we're holding, each, we're holding each other accountable. So that was a stark contrast in my personality. And I also think that um, I started having an attitude where I didn't like the women that I competed against. So, and, and I held on to that for a very, very long time. The attitude was, if you were my competition, I didn't like you. I couldn't like you. I didn't want to know anything about you. Okay, interesting. Yeah. And I held on to that for a very long time. But that was what gave me my edge. Mm. I couldn't have a conversation with you. I couldn't get to know you. I had to see you and I had to see Red. Wow. Yeah. Interesting. So what happened to Paris? Oh, God. Paris. Yes. Let me talk about that. So that was, my goodness, that was my first trip to Europe. That was my first trip to Europe. All right. But I knew I had done all the work for two years. So it was the World Championships. No Canadian woman had ever won a World Championship title. And in the 100-meter hurdles, I won. I won that race. And, God, it's still something that I, I think about now, and it gives me goosebumps. It's funny because our, our mail guy, our, our post office guy, rang the doorbell today, and he dropped off my mail. And he's like, I always drop off your mail. I don't mean to. He knows because clearly my name's on my mail. But he's like, can I see your 2003 medal? You're kidding. 100%. And? And I ran upstairs and got it. <laughs> I ran upstairs and got it. And he's like, I hate, I'm like, I don't want to do this, but I drop off your mail all the time. He's like, I, and he's like, I just I've always want to ask you. And I just got the nerve to ask you now. And I was like, sure, dude, you can see it. Yeah. So, Eamon, if you're out there, yep. Thank you for making me feel kind of nice. And you know the too. name of your postman. Well, yeah. You know, you get to know people. When you have a name like Perdita, like it's hard to kind of be incognito. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? There's not a lot of a, a lot of them. Not a Perditas around there. Exactly. Exactly. So Paris wasn't a dream come true. I think it really kind of put me, you know, in a lot of people's consciousness and their and their minds, and it mm -hmm. really right. For me, it's one of the moments I'm I'm most proud of in my career. Now, are you still in college at this time? Yeah, I am a college. Yes, 2003. 2003. So 2003? I'm still in university. So yeah. yeah, I was still in university. Okay. So um, I had one more semester to go. Okay. But my, the decision was there's sixty thousand dollars American. That was the prize money. I've also won. 
at that. Are you allowed to keep it as a stu- as a student? No, no, you're not allowed to keep it. But remember, it's the summer now, and I have one more senior. Uh, I have I have one more year of uni- of school of academically because yeah. remember I'm a little bit behind, um, because I started late. But I have one more um, indoor of eligibility. So after I won, the decision was: Do you take the sixty thousand dollars and turn professional? Or do you stay and continue your commitment to the University of Illinois, who you've won multiple conference titles with, broken the NCAA record, you know, won three NCAA titles? Do you all of a sudden abandon them because you got 60 grand check? Like, do I do that to my teammates? I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) I have no clue. (laughs) So I'll I'll let you off the hook. I'll tell you what you do. I, um, I weighed it very heavily. It was a hard decision. Because at that point, I had won everything that I'm going to win. Yeah. At the end, I've seen every girl that I'm going to see. I'd, I'd won it all, really. So there wasn't left for me to do. There wasn't much more for me to sink my Can teeth I into. You? Yeah. Where's your rival? Where? Yeah, you know the rival back in Pickering? Oh, Shelly Ann Brown? Yeah. She went to the University of Nebraska. She got okay. a scholarship at the University of Nebraska. Did she do hurdles yeah. as well? Uh, I think she tried for a while, but then she gave it up. She just did I don't the think. Yeah, I think she just did the sprinting. But she Sorry, I just want, I wanted well. to get there as well. Sorry. Yeah, no, no, Sorry, no. I didn't mean to interrupt you. No, okay. I don't mind. That is a good question. <laughs> um, we never really faced off in the hurdles because she didn't do them. So, um, yeah, so I made a decision basically that I'm going to come back and make a decision mm. and decide it. So the factors were I've won everything, I've done everything. But on the other hand, I have this emotional connection and I feel the sense of obligation to my coach and my teammates, this university that has allowed me to become a world champion, right? Mm-hmm. In in university. Um, so I met with my coach, I met with my teammates, yeah. I met with the university and everyone gave me their blessing to make the decision I needed to, to get. Wow. I also didn't want to lose my scholarship, right? So if I turn pro, does that mean you take my scholarship? Because I still had one more year of get mm-hmm. to, to get my, my degree. Mm-hmm. And um, so they said, nope. If you decide to turn professional, you can keep your same coach. You can keep your same locker. You can come to practice as is with the team, and we will pay your entire scholarship. So they allowed me to do that. They didn't have to. This is different, isn't it? Yeah. So you took the money, stayed in school. I took the money and stayed in school, and I finished school. So while I was training for the Olympics in 2004, I was actually finishing an honors degree in uh, kinesiology. And so that was very hard to juggle. (laughs) Some people will take the year off and Mm. then come back later. But I'm like, if I take a year off, the money might be too sweet in my pocket and I don't come back. And it's something that I really know is important to my mother to make sure that I have that. Mm. So for me, it was the best of both worlds that they supported me. But then I also knew that I'm going to see it through. Like I can can do both. I can do both. Let me ask you about... the, the the machine that is the yeah. NC2A. Mm-hmm. Um, and I can't remember if I've had this conversation. I think I must yeah. have had this conversation with Morgan. Um, but the NC2A not paying yeah. athletes. I understand that mm-hmm. uh, for the most part, education is paid for for a lot of these top athletes, yeah. whether they're you track like yourself or whether they're on football scholarships, yeah. basketball scholarships. They make millions, if not billions yes. of dollars. A, the schools make millions of dollars. Yes. Should athletes in school be allowed to make money, whether it's their school or NC2A pay them or yeah. they're able to run in meets and keep the money? What are your yeah. thoughts? Yeah. Oh, my husband, Morgan Campbell, like you, who's been on this podcast tons of times, you know, he has a very strong opinion about this. Yeah. And he thinks absolutely they should be paid i agree with him when i was in school you couldn't even have a job so not only did you well, i mean your scholarship is valuable right it's worth oh, tons sure but you couldn't even work now thankfully ncaa athletes are allowed to work mm-hmm. and make money but to your point you know you have this institution that makes 
millions of money off of the backs mm-hmm. of these athletes. You know, basically has free advertising and all this revenue. And at the end of the day, you think of what a scholarship costs. It costs tons. But if you think about, you know, the 40, 50, 60,000, whatever it is now, compared to the millions of dollars that they are raising every year, mm-hmm. it's not the same. So should they be able to make some money? Yeah, absolutely. I would have no issues with paying an athlete. Even if you don't give it to them right away and you keep it, you know, in an account until they, re- they graduate and, they re- and they re- they're done, their NCAAC, um, career and then you give it to them at the end i think that that's absolutely fine that makes sense but they really should be able to get a portion it's almost like being an intern and not being paid like Mm -hmm. we we, most of us don't agree with that sure you should be paid you know rightfully for the work that you're doing interesting do you think it'll happen I, I, I don't think it will be for our generation. I think I don't think it will happen as long as I'm alive, honestly. Wow. I hope it does, though. I hope I hope the machine changes and they give they, they pinch off a little bit of that that um, that money and that success and all those resources and give it to the athletes, mm-hmm. because without the athletes, it doesn't work. Right. It, yeah. The whole thing is lost. It falls down. Wow. So, Sydney, you are on the Canadian team. Yeah. You were like, okay, I guess so. Uh, yeah, I'll <laughs> take it. your coach told you. Sure. Um, World Championships in Edmonton. Yep. Was a wake-up call. Was a wake-up call. Went to Paris and yes. won. Yes. Um, Olympics are in two years after that, right? They're the next year. So the 2004 year. was Athens. Athens. Yes, 2000. Tell me about Athens. Yeah. Athens for me was, God, looking leading in, it was such a glorious time for me because I was... Going in as the world championship champion, but that aside, I was really confident about who I was as a as an athlete, right? Like okay. I, I was hungry. I wanted it. I'd proven myself to the world, mm-hmm. and all of a sudden, I'm at this moment. And so it had been three years from my very first world championship, and in those three years, I had really matured. Mm-hmm. And so here I am, about to make a statement and about to do something. Athens for me was very much, and again, this is why I'm working on this book. It, it, it very much for me wasn't necessarily about gold. I wanted the gold 100%, mm-hmm. but it was about understanding a lot of my mother's life and struggle. My mother came as an immigrant from St. Lucia. We had gone through a lot of you know ups and downs and displacement. And so I'd witnessed that with her as her, as her first in, um, child born in Canada. So we had lived a lot of that together. So fast forward to, to that. Athens for me was like, oh, my God, I get to show my mother that her struggle, you know, as a as an immigrant to stay in Canada was worth it because here's an immigrant woman with a Canadian born child. Right. It was very difficult. Mm -hmm. She didn't have any papers. She didn't have any any status here. And so for me, all these decades, all those decades later, Athens for me was I and it was it was very subconscious. It wasn't like I'm going to Athens to win this for my mom. It wasn't that. But it Mm. was very much like this moment is bigger than me. It's bigger than. Um, I've ever imagined it could be, but it's really like, God, mom, I hope you know it was worth it. I hope you know us living in people's basements. I hope you know us living in, you know, women's shelter. I hope you know that was worth it because look where I am because you decided to tough it out just so you could drag me into, you know, into, into life like this. Right. Cause you knew if you went back to St. Lucia, most likely it wouldn't, we wouldn't have had a life. Right. Mm. So Athens for me was very much a, beautiful kind of an of an awakening for me and it was it was very symbolic in many ways of course the story is very famous that in the final having been unbeaten in in the in the heats and the semis also being unbeaten leading into the olympic games i'd not lost a race right Mm -hmm. 
And then I get to the very last one, the one to win it all. And on the very first hurdle, I fall. I fall in, in such a dramatic fashion that even when I got up, I was so shook and so numb and so um, unaware of really what happened that it took, it took a while. Even as I was walking, going through the motions, it took a while for me to even understand what just happened, right? Mm. And the thing about trauma, trauma like that just stays in every cell in your body. And even decades later, it's still in my body, right? But in that exact moment, my body has just gone through pow, fallen so hard and so and so um, and so fiercely. And I felt like I'd let so many people down, right? And it's not like, oh, poor me, woe is me. But you think about all the hours. You think about all the investments. You think about your sponsors. You think about your community. You think about the fact that there's this probably this huge tv truck satellite truck outside of your house covering it live mm. right you think about the sign that's put up at the you know the pickering burger king for you right those are all the things that now that that is over you're like god i made a mess of this and it will always be something that i will um it will always be the one that got away quite mm. frankly but you don't line up before 10 hurdles and ever assume one that you'll ever fall or that you'll you'll be on your feet all the time you always know that that's it's that risk but mm -hmm. you don't focus on that but you never line up afraid and i went after it that day and i'll never regret yeah. ever going going after it because then what it, that's the only way you can win that's that's yeah. the gamble you take as a hurdler it's a it's a work hazard it's a it's a race of millimeters right so you think of the width of a dime that's how close you're coming to the top of these you know 33 inch hurdles yeah and you're making judgments at speed mm -hmm. sometimes the wind is a little bit too strong behind you and your your body is used to a certain rhythm and the rhythm is now messed up mm -hmm. you know sometimes you cannot understand what adrenaline means in the Olympics compared to in practice compared to you know at a world or compared to like you know at an all comers meet you don't know what your body's going to do mm -hmm. um, but for me it has always been that one moment where I'm like you know what happened Pete don't ever shy away from it you know who you are it doesn't define you whatever the narrative narrative is of that moment that has been created in the media or beyond i don't hold myself to that right mm -hmm. because i never got into the sport at first because it was who i was right i love to compete i enjoyed the, the limelight and the attention but at the end of the day i always knew who i was right mm -hmm. which is why i think when i was that young i could easily walk away from it i think that's how you can walk away from scholarships because at the end of the day i love it and i want it and i'm not being flippant about it but I always, I, and I still know that there's more to me than jumping 10 hurdles really, really fast. Yeah. 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 Did, um, generally, does the media, do we, I, I'll, I'm not media and, and I know you, you are, yeah. uh, but do we treat our athletes fair? Um, I think, um, I think we treat our athletes fair, but I think what happens in, in the Canadian media landscape is we create narratives. So whether it's the Raptors can't close or they collapse mm. and they can't win, um, whether it's, you know, Scott Moyer and Tessa Virtues are now, you know, superheroes and, yeah. and you know, you know, you have this hero worship, which they have earned and, and rightfully so, but that is now the narrative. You know, whether it's, um, you know, whatever the stories are, we create these narratives. And I think even now as a freelance broadcaster, I don't necessarily always question the narratives because most times they, they make sense. Mm -hmm. But I try to make sure that I'm not necessarily just adding to that just because it's it's convenient. 
because mm-hmm. to me that makes me a lazy broadcaster just because you know the canadian landscape media landscape says this is the story and this is the angle yeah. doesn't mean i have to treat it as such doesn't mean i have to go in every single time i would ever talk to tess and scott ask them the same angle of questions mm-hmm. no i don't want to do that so i don't think it's a matter of being fair or unfair but i definitely think that it's a bit formulaic yeah. at times and you know I think I, I can say that only because I've been the athlete in many 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 mix zones mm-hmm. I've had many interviews but now I'm on the other side Yeah. so I've had kind of the dual roles and I can actually you know I have the lens to kind of see both of them very clearly so I, I do hold it in my head like you know, so for, for an example you know just piggybacking off of the Athens piece there were times where it made sense for a reporter or a broadcaster or a journalist whoever to ask me about Athens right mm-hmm. but there were times where the context was never it made no sense to mm-hmm. add it into a piece or a story like it was years removed like I retired in 2013 if you think about when ha- Athens happened it, there was a nine year gap but it always it was always something that had to just always be like a you know as an asterisk they would always bring it up Always bring it up. And again, I, I have no, I'm talking about it to you now. So I have yeah. no idea issues with it being brought up, yeah. but almost like it was lazy journalism in like, and, and if there were 10 times that I was, that Athens was brought up out of the blue, there was maybe one or two times where we're just having a conversation, athlete to athlete about what just happened today. Mm-hmm. Not in the context of what happened six years ago, four years ago, two years ago. Mm-hmm. We're talking about it today. And um, those times are really refreshing. Cause here I here I am thinking, oh, this this journalist, this reporter, is just talking about this tenth, you know, national title or mm. this, you know, third world championship medal or whatever it is, and not necessarily in the context of Athens. So I think for me, I always try today. I'm like, okay, what's the narrative? What is everybody saying? Do I agree with it? Yeah, no, I agree with it. That makes sense. But do I need to ask this question? Because mm-hmm. I think what broadcasters and journalists forget is. Every question that I've asked you, it's probably been asked 10,000 times before. So why do I need to go in with this exact same angle? Yeah. So fair, not fair, I don't know. But I do feel like let's let's all start doing things that are a little bit different and not, not be lazy. Mm-hmm. So you obviously didn't retire after Athens. Did you want to? Uh, you know, it was hard because I had <clears throat> to battle with the doubts. So the issue that happened psychologically was I fell at the first hurdle. And so if you start at a race, you're always at the first. Yeah. So I'm always on your marks. Yeah. I have those tense moments where I'm seeing this blasted mm-hmm. first hurdle. As opposed to maybe if it was the ninth or even the fifth, the race is bang, started already before yeah. you really have a sense to know that you're on it. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And so I was paralyzed by that for a very, very, very long time. And um, But what I did is I showed up every single time. So... As much as anxiety and dread would like just course through my veins and turn me cold, anytime I'd practice or in a race, I always showed up. Sometimes I showed up with my tail between my legs. Sometimes I showed up and, you know, there was a flashback on the big screen. This of, is after Athens. This is after, after Athens, right? These okay. are just the psychological yeah. issues and barriers, right? Sometimes I'm in a race and I'm being introduced in a race in France and they show a highlight reel of everybody and my highlight reel is me falling at the Olympic Games Aye. right before I'm about to get on, on in the blocks and they say Avo Mark. So those are the things that you battle. But what I did is I made sure that every single step I showed up. Even if I wasn't myself, I kept saying, baby girl, one day you will be yourself. One day you will mm. be that fierce 
competitor. You will be unafraid again because this doesn't define you. And, um, you know, my, my next real big breakthrough wasn't for another, thank God I went on, I continued to win medals and I, and I was, you know, ranked top five in the world, even after Athens, like right mm -hmm. away, thankfully. Um, but it was my big breakthrough wasn't until 2007, which was three years after, um, Athens. And that was the world championship. And so I ended up going there winning a silver medal. It was my birthday, thankfully. Ah. Uh, yeah. And at that time it was the fastest hundred meter final in world championship history. So from first place to eighth place, no woman had ever finished race that fast to earn her spot. Yeah. So even in second place, what I had run, you know, 1249, you know, typically would have won, but me and Michelle Perry from the U S were like three, one hundreds away from each other in, yeah. in that race. But I had worked my butt off for those three years. So to finally be back on a podium in, you know, an international podium mm -hmm. in that way for me was like, see, I told you, you could do it. It's interesting. You, that's, it's very mature because yeah. you, you wouldn't have liked a second place finish no. maybe five years ago. Mm -mm. But it's different, right? In, yeah. um, no, I wouldn't have liked the second place finish. I don't think I would have been grateful for it as yeah. much. Absolutely. But I think there's something that happens when you're at that elite level. What happens when you're on an Olympic or world championship podium is mm. you understand that it's very rare, right? So when you're at a, you know, elementary level, high school level, college level, mm -hmm. there, it, college is absolutely elite, right? But if you look at how big that pool is and that pond is, mm. you know, your, your instances and your chances of winning if you're, if you're elite already is great mm -hmm. when you're competing against the world in a sport that is globally contested mm -hmm. the chances of you getting on a podium the odds dr drastically drop so what happens when you're on a podium whether you're first second or third you're not necessarily on there and, you know i and salt you're upset you're kind of like maybe i could have done better maybe i could have got the gold or maybe i could have you know you know run a little faster but you're like whole you look around and you're like almost like I did it again because mm -hmm. you don't know when it's going to happen again. Yeah. Right. And you don't know how long your career is going to be. So you, you look at the women around you and you're like, yeah, it's us three today, but guess what? You replay that exact same race an hour mm -hmm. later or yeah. on a different day. Yeah. It's a whole different set of athletes on the podium. Sure. Do you see what I mean? Yeah. So yeah. it's, you're on there and silver is silver, but shoot, I work my butt off because when you're talking about fractions of a second, when you're talking about three, I'm not even talking about a second and you know how fast it, Second. Yeah. I'm talking about three one hundredths of a second. Mm -hmm. That's the difference between me and other women. So you with your naked eye can't tell the difference. Yeah. I'm okay with the silver. Like yeah. I'm, I'm totally okay with cool. that. Cool. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. That is awesome. Yeah. Um, and so this World Championships is where was oh, it? Oh seven in Osaka, Japan. Osaka, Japan. Two thousand and eight Olympics are coming up. Yes. Which? Where was that? That was Beijing. Beijing. Beijing and Beijing for me was. And this is something that I had, I've had to reconcile in my career is the Olympics have never gone my way. So I don't have an Olympic medal. Mm. So for nearly a decade of my career, I was one of the top five in the world ever and never got an Olympic medal. Got almost every other medal, but never that one. And again, I talk about the odds in every four years. So in 2008, I'd come off of that 2007 silver, mm -hmm. fastest top three ever in history of the world. And then going to the Olympics, I'm feeling fabulous and wonderful. Mm -hmm. I get injured break my foot can't compete 
I'm sitting on the couch, Morgan Campbell, who's my boyfriend at the time, who's not my husband, but I'm sitting on his couch in Mississauga and I'm a mess, right? Because I missed the Olympics. Mm. You, we all know the, what happened in Athens. So 08 was supposed to be my redemption, right? Redemption. Quote unquote, right? This is what the newspapers are saying. Sure. Felician's comeback, Felician's redemption, all this narrative stuff, right? Mm-hmm. Which... Athletes, if you're listening to me, don't read your own hype. Don't read your own stories. Don't believe it. Just don't. I didn't know that back then. So I'm reading these headlines. And I'm like, God, I'm supposed to be coming back. And here I am missing the Olympics. So I'm on Morgan's couch crying. I'm a mess. Like, there's this comeback again. Blah, 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 blah. And my agent calls me. He's like, hey, CBC um, reached, reached out to me. Um, they want to know if you want to come to the Olympics and be an analyst. And I was like, no. Don't want to do it. Mm-hmm. And Morgan, thank God for him at the time and even now, he was like, P, I know it's going to be hard. It's going to be emotionally tough. But he's like, what are you going to do? Sit on my couch for the next couple of weeks <laughs> and watch it on TV? Um, at that point, I also want to stop rehabbing because I'm like, it's a lost cause to even rehab this injury. I'm just going to sit on the couch and just I'll start next next season. He's like, no, what you're going to do is you're going to you're going to get on a plane and go to Beijing because one, you're going to have the best seat in the house to watch the Olympics. You're going to have a better seat in the house than sitting on my couch and being sorry for yourself all day. You're going to go. That's tough love. Wow. Yeah, exactly. Yes. And I needed it. I didn't like it at the time, but sure. I, looking back, I'm like, oh, thank God. And he's like, you're also going to continue your rehab while you're there. So they made arrangements where I could, you know, be close to a gym, do my rehab. Again, my entire team is at the Olympics, right? Don't forget that. Like, my physio is yeah. there. My coach is there. I'm not. So going, I've, I'm reunited in a sense. So what happened while I was there is I fell in love with broadcasting. How mm. hard is it to sit there and watch a race where literally... 11, almost 12 months before you raced all those same girls and got a silver medal. But the Olympics, you're not in that race. So it was hard to watch it and call it. But I made a vow to myself is I'm not going to take it. I'm not going to get personal. I'm not going to take it personally. I'm going to be a damn good storyteller. Mm -hmm. Right. I didn't know the phrase at the time, but I said, I'm not going to let any of my my jealousy or my envy or my bias stop me from telling the story of what is happening in a race. Because what I know better than anybody else in this broadcast booth is what it feels like to be down there. Nobody else does. Mm -hmm. Right. Again, this is my boyfriend at the time who happens to be a sports writer helping me make this switch, right? He was saying like... Yeah. You've never done that before, No, I've never done it. I didn't yeah. know what I was doing. But he was really, really helpful. And it was like, you tell them what you know. And you tell what you know and you tell it the best way that you know and nobody can mess with that if you do it. And so he was really, really helpful in that sense. And that's what I did. So I put aside the emotion because you have to understand, I should be down there. Sure. But all of a sudden I'm talking about women that I'm like, oh, I could beat you. Oh, that's what you ran in the heats? I could beat you. But I have to now take that hat off. Yeah, you can't say that anymore. No, I can't say that. And I can feel it. Yeah. But me feeling it cannot seep into what I'm saying because it's not objective and it's not fair and it's not right. Yeah. And um, and so I, I took that off and I had a conversation with some of the producers. I said, I have, I have privileged information about these women, right? Meaning I know if they've broken down in a call room before. I know if you know, looking into ex-athletes' eyes, what that means, right? Like, I know certain things, or I'm friends with them. I'm not going to betray that kind of information, Mm. but I will absolutely give you enough that will give your viewers insight. And they're like, we're okay with that. We're not asking you to betray anyone's confidence. We're not asking you to tell secrets or whatever. And again, I was a little more paranoid than I needed to be. No one was ever asking that of me. But Mm. because I didn't know the role, I didn't know what was being asked. So I, I put all these cards on the table. And what happened is I left... 
the Beijing 2008 Olympics, where I should have been a starter because I, I had made sure. I had made the team essentially, and thought this really sucks, but I n- had never felt adrenaline like that off of the track. So as soon as they were in mm. my ear counting me down, saying three, two, one, live. Mm-hmm. I was like, oh my God. And you know, I love attention. I've never been shy to say, I love attention. I love being on. <laughs> you clearly can't shut me up on your podcast. So you can tell I love to talk. So I felt a high. Yeah. So when I got back home nine days later, I said, when I retire, whenever that day comes, because I was hoping it was very far away and it ended up being six years later, I said, and I didn't tell anybody. I said, in six, or sorry, when I'm done, I'm going to be a broadcaster. I'm going to pursue this. I'm going to hone my craft. And so when I retired in 2013, I went to Seneca for their um, their Summer Institute Broadcast Journalism Program. Mm-hmm. And I took my craft seriously. And I remember people were like, what? You're going to school? You don't need to go to school. I said, yes, I do need to go to school because I want everyone to take me seriously. I also want to get paid what I'm worth. So you're not going to pay me no chump change. I'm going to have the credentials there to back go. up my work. Yeah. And so it worked out in the end, 2008. Listen, I, we, we're, we're, we're coming to the end of your track career. Yeah. Um, and, and you said you, 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 you never won an Olympic medal, but I mean, here's what you've won. And there's probably tons I'm missing out. Um, you won the Excellence Award. Yes. In grade three. Yes. Shout out to Mrs. That's Starkers. number one. That's number one. But first Canadian woman to win an individual medal at an IAAF World Championships. Yeah. Um, 2003 100-meter hurdles champion. Yeah. 2004 60-meters hurdles indoor champion. 10-time Canadian champion. Yeah. I mean, 10 times. That's crazy. That's saying I'm old, man. <laughs> I'm legend. <laughs> um, NC2A title three times. Yeah. Uh, at the University of Illinois. And the 2003 NC2A female track athlete. Of the year. Of yeah. the year. Yeah. I won that twice, actually. Twice. Think, yeah, I think... 2002 and 03. Now they call it the Bo- Bowerman, I think. Um, that's a huge Nike award. That's nothing to sneeze at. No, I mean, that's nothing to that's sneeze huge. at. Yeah, that's not bad, right? That's not that's amazing. bad. <laughs> yeah, no, I'll, I'll take it. I'll take it. It's yeah. been a good ride, man. Absolutely. Good ride. You retire in 2013. Yeah. Um, after an amazing career. Thank you. Um, and you go skydiving? I went skydiving. So tell me, tell me about this. So I'm kind of crazy. So this is what happened in 2013. That's the year I was getting ready to t- to retire. Mm-hmm. But I also had um, a contract with Nike. So okay. I think I had maybe another two years on the contract because they tend to go like every Olympic cycle. Mm-hmm. So technically, I could have went to 2016. Yeah. And uh, I call my agent. I'm like, I think I'm done. Like after this, I think I'm. I think I'm finished. What was your last race? Do you remember? Yeah, it was at the University of Toronto. Yeah. It was um, in 2012. Mm-hmm. What was the name of that meet? Maybe the Festival of Excellence or something. Maybe okay. rebranded the name of the meet now. Jerome was, something was that? No, no, that was in Vancouver, but it was a big meet. Okay. And they they did it every year in Toronto. So that was my very last year. I I sucked. I I maybe was fifth or third. I sucked. Cause I had, I had checked out. I knew I was <laughs> done. And, um, but here's the thing. I never do anything just to do it. So I thought as a, instead of just stopping right now, I'm going to take the whole year to soul search. So I gave back my, uh, my carding. So basically every year an athlete gets funding from the Canadian government. I gave that back. I said, I don't want your money as I'm mulling this over. Um, I told my agent and he's like, are you sure you want to do this? 
Are yeah. you sure you want to do this, right? Because like you could just basically just spike up and go out there and pretend and get get some money. Mm-hmm. But I didn't want to do that. I wanted the clarity to just make the decision without being influenced. Mm-hmm. And um, so what I did was I got on a flight to Australia mm-hmm. in March of 2013. So my last race was, let's say, August of 2012. It's now March of 2013. And I got on this flight to Australia because I wanted to go where, to my very first Olympic experience, right? Mm. One, I want to make peace with pretty much always feeling like I was ready and not getting the one thing that that I wanted, right? Was that Olympic medal. I never got it. So I had to really make peace with, are you going to chase another one mm-hmm. till 2016? No one would blame me if I did. Or are you going to go and say goodbye to this part of your career that you never got and make peace with it? So I got on the plane and I, I basically jumped out of a plane when I arrived. And that was, you know, thanks to my best friend. She came with me. Her name is Simone. She came with me. And um, the reason wasn't to decide whether or not I should retire. It was basically to, like, just absorb this experience, absorb where this journey really for me, um, at least on the world stage, started, right? It started with my very first Olympics when I was 19. And here I am at age turning 33 back where it began. Wow. And jumping just gave me some clarity. It was like, and when I landed and I was, I survived, I said, yes, Lord, I'm alive. I'm quitting. I'm done. And I called my agent. I said, call my sponsors. I am done. Mm-hmm. And I was done. And I was, I, I, till this day, how many years ago now? Five years? I do not regret it. It's the best decision I've ever made in my life was to stop when I did. It was the best. Wow. And you went straight into Seneca? I went straight to Seneca. Yeah. Um, right away. As soon as I got off the plane from Australia, I got back. I started the program that spring and ended that fall of 2013 and got my first job at CHCH in Hamilton. Shout out to CHCH in Hamilton. Got my first job as a reporter, a general assignment reporter in Hamilton. And I started that December of 2013. What was your first piece? Well, here's the thing. Let me tell you the story about John, (laughs) who was the news director and still is. Hey, John, if you're listening. So he hires me. I've never really done this right officially. Yeah. And I get there in December. My first day was in December, right before Christmas. And he's like, well, for the two weeks, you're just going to be a a writer and you're going to shadow our other VJs. So VJ means you go out, shoot your own piece, um, write your own piece, edit it. And so guess what happens? He's like, you're going to shadow Adam for two weeks. I'm like, great. So I'm ready to. So on the first day, I shadow Adam on the very second day of my broadcast news gathering career. Again, my only other experience was in 2008. It's now 2013. He sends me in a news van from Hamilton to Niagara Falls Uh by myself to cover a fire on camera. This is my second day. I've only been out of broadcast school maybe since September. It's now December. I'm thinking I'm just going to write little pieces for web for two weeks, then shadow and then eventually get and it might be a couple months till I get a piece on air. Nope. Next day, I don't go even know how to a fire. go fire. But how do I know how to get to Niagara Falls? I'm from Pickering, Ontario, on the other side. Oh, he didn't even give you a driver. No, I he drove my the van. He said, you, so I, I had this little rinky-dink GPS. Don't, I don't even know where Hamilton, I didn't even know Hamilton was until I moved there, honestly. But now you're having me drive from Niagara Falls to Hamilton. I'm a duck out of water. So I get there and I had the best, his name is Dwight, the best camera guy. He helped me so much. I think it was horrible. But I covered this fire. Thank God no one died. And um, and drove myself back. And the whole debacle must have been like a five-hour saga. My but goodness. I was on air every single day 
after that there was no um there was no writing there was no nothing there was you are now a vj and a Literally, my pieces were on air every week. Wow. Yeah, it was amazing. It was amazing. Nine months. Yeah. When did you start covering sports? Uh, first big gig for sports would have been 2015 for CBC Pan Am Games. So they really okay. gave me a shot. That yeah. was here. Yeah, that was here okay. in Toronto. Yeah, yeah, in 2015. Yeah, they... um. They offered that to me. And, and some events were in your hood, I think. Yes, baseball, there were some. Baseball, I think, was around. Yeah, baseball that... wasn't boxing. Boxing was also, I think, in, okay. in, in the schwa as well. and Or at least the Pickering area, baseball was, absolutely. But yeah, that was that was great. And I've been going, doing sport thing ever since. Wow. Yeah. And is that awesome. your thing, sports journalism? Is that what you want? Or You know what? It is. Yeah. It is. I um. I love my time at CHCH and it gave me, you know, my big break, but I found it was very hard to cover news because I, I didn't know how to turn it off. So I would cover great stories like someone winning $5 million, someone turning, you know, 105, but I would also cover, you know, rapes and a little aspect of the Tim Bosma Mm. Um, sentencing and the, and that trial, I covered a little bit of that just a couple of days, and you know, Charlene, the wife, was in the courtroom, and I just remember feeling like how I felt. I didn't enjoy that sensation, and knocking on the door and trying to get people to talk to you about someone who's allegedly done something super bad. I couldn't turn it off, and so I think it became too much for me. Um, and, and at the same time with the sport aspect of it, people always want, usually always want to talk to you, right? It's usually happy. It's not this kind mm. of devious criminal element that I, I didn't know how to shed when I went home at nights. And so I, I, you know, I don't say that I'll never go back to news or I won't try anything. Um, I just find this is my sweet spot for now mm. and, I, and I'm happy to stay there. Tell me about this recent australia trip that you went on to cover the commonwealth games yeah 2018 commonwealth games in um in in the gold coast in australia were in april mm -hmm. and so i'm a freelancer and i and i love my work with cbc but this time i got the opportunity to work with the zone and so it was the first time that an online sports streaming platform had the right to the commonwealth games so i literally went over with myself a producer um, and a, we had an assistant director, I believe, and then we also had a, a, a shooter. And the four of us were just a pod, and we went out every day and captured mm -hmm. stories, told Canadian stories. And what is great about the web is that you there's no length. So for someone like me who loves to gab and loves to talk, like <laughs> you can put a 10-piece up or a 5 You should keep it short because people will click off if it's too long. I know that. But what's nice is with television and traditional television, it's... Maybe you have a minute, maybe you have three, if you're if that's very generous, but there's advertisers, there's commercials, there's another program after yours goes off. With the web, you can just create, put it on there, and hopefully people click it and they can watch as long as they want to. Yeah. And so I really loved that aspect of storytelling. It was really fun. I had athletes eating Vegemite on camera, so I, you know, did <laughs> did that and that was a great little spoof. But then we other had, you know, serious ones where Taylor Rock, you know, made Canadian history, winning eight medals in the pool. Wow. And, you know, had a great sit down interview with her and her mom and dad and just had a really full length feature about how she got her start. And it was just you, there was just a great range that I really enjoyed. How you, I mean, when, so when, when I told you that I just found out that this had happened. Yeah. Um, why, you know, 
I know DAZN was covering it, but yeah. like why I didn't see it on any highlights at all. Yeah. Like nothing was told. Yeah. It's um it's interesting, right? Because the Commonwealth Games are it's still a big meet. It's, it's a big meet. It's very prestigious and um I'm not gonna under undercut it in any way, but it's especially in this hemisphere and for track and field, and I'm just talking to track and field, it's very tricky because our season usually heats up in June, July, and August, and you have this meet in April when we're just coming off of our indoor season. So on and this part of the world, we're just coming off of winter. And so you introduce a summer element in, it's hard, right? Mm. So it doesn't necessarily get full billing on this part of the world. Sure. And, um, and so I think it's also one of those events where it's really hard to get probably advertising dollars behind it because of that reason here. It's not an Olympics. It's not a world championship. It's not the, the World Cup of Soccer. So it's, it's a stepchild. It doesn't take away the prestige or what, yeah. what a medal means. But for some reason, it's just not put on the same platform. So tell me about some of these athletes that, that did really, really well. Yeah. Uh, I talked about Taylor Rock yeah. making Canadian history. And um, What sport? In swimming. So she did, gosh, she did she did a whole bunch of different strokes in the pool. Okay. So from butterfly to, to freestyle. But she's 17, I believe. Mm. And basically Taylor Rockstar is what you want to call her. Her last name is Rock, R-U-C-K. But um, what was amazing about her is she basically went there as an unknown and comes out with these eight medals. Eight medals. Eight medals, most ever. Um, or, or yeah, tied for most ever for, by a Canadian woman, which is phenomenal to be able to do. And um, for me, I just I was covering a whole bunch of things. I covered track and field. I covered swimming. I covered, oh, God, did we cover... I covered everything. I'm blanking now, but I covered at least seven or eight different sports when I was when I was there. Wow. Yeah, and I enjoy it. Nice. Um, I, I've had a number of uh, women on this podcast. Yeah. Uh, in media, um, in entertainment and stuff, and um, I, I want to ask you a question, a similar question that I've asked most of them. Yeah. Um, is this whole um, not idea, but you know, so women in broadcasting, women in media. Yeah. Um, you know, we, we've heard stories that it's it's a harder ladder to climb. Uh, we we've uh, recently uh, heard and, and seen stories of um, women facing um, sexual harassment and things yeah. like that. Yeah. Um, how do you, as a relatively newcomer? Uh, in, in the media landscape, how have you dealt, or maybe you haven't dealt, mm -hmm. knock on wood maybe, yeah. but how have you dealt or deal with things like this that that come up? Yeah, you know, I, I um, it's, a, it's a really good conversation that you're, 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 you're bringing up. For me, there's there's a, a few things at play, right? So I'm a, I'm a woman, I'm a woman of color, but I'm also an athlete. Mm. And I will say that being an athlete, I'm not naive to this, can and, and has open doors for me now they don't stay open if you're not good right so i know there's a there's a sense of privilege in having you know a name that people recognize right sure. so and there's a little bit of like oh it's perdita okay like so i i'm not saying it preferential or special treatment mm. but i'm not an intern coming up like i got a job right away i was on air on the second day ever i didn't have to go to you know a really small tiny market yeah. in another part of the country to get my start mm. so i understand for me that there's um there's a fast forward that has yeah. happened so that, that that's a, that's a that's a, that's privilege yeah. right in a sure. way um 
the other part of that though is but i'm also a woman i'm a woman of color so mm. there are times that i have been in the field so for example in australia i was in the mix zone and it was the gold medal match in beach volleyball between mm. canada and australia mm. so it was historic because it was the first time that beach volleyball was ever at the Commonwealth Games. Okay. Australia is also playing, so the crowds are nuts, right? It's like a huge, huge, like, event. And I'm in the mix zone, and there's an Australian, their main crew is in the mix zone, but we're also. Mm-hmm. Our women ended up winning. And so I'm set up in the mix zone with my producer and my camera guy. And the mix zone is pretty much packed, right? And the camera operator... Basically, a whole bunch of people are in this queue waiting for them to come over. Clearly, Canada won. So that interview, I'll get that first. Yeah. And so I'm just in position. Like, I've been there the whole time. But they're only there to cover this event because it's the gold medal. They haven't covered the rounds or anything like that. So this camera guy basically is telling me to get out of the way. Mm. Now, there's a whole bunch of other people around me. I'm Mm. the only woman of color. Mm-hmm. but he's not asked anybody else to get out of the way. Mm-hmm. At this time, I don't have my microphone. I'm not holding my microphone because my camera guy usually holds the microphone and just before they come over, he'll hand it to me, right? Yeah. Now, this is the dilemma that people of color have discussing race and subconscious biases mm-hmm. because, well, did he move me out of the way just because I was absolutely in his way? Mind you, there's a lot of space on the other side of him. But of all the people you asked to move, I have the most right to be there because I'm going to have a gold medal interview with Canada and I'm a reporter. Yeah. But the other people who don't look like me, you didn't ask not one of them to move out of the way and they didn't have a right to be there. Mm -hmm. They're just producers or handlers or whoever else. Mm -hmm. But there was a part of me that thought, did he say that to me because his automatic assumption is in the sea of white people Mm -hmm. and white people working mm-hmm. the black woman who is just standing here at the at in this gate is just there to be there mm. do you know what i'm saying mm-hmm. so i quickly said no i'm not moving i'm with canada i'm moving here and he kind of flinched like and then he fell back because mm. then he realized oh She's here. Like, she belongs here. And she's actually the equivalent of my Mm -hmm. blonde haired, Mm -hmm. you know, broadcaster that I'm actually getting ready to shoot. Mm -hmm. Do you see what I mean? Yeah. So those are the things I I face. And there's plenty more subtle examples. Yeah. Are they blatant racism? Am I going to, you know, throw that out there? No, but that is something as someone who goes to the world, you know, as a black woman, when things do happen to me that I wonder, like, this is my producer who is a white woman. Does she have to deal with mm. with that? So it's constantly a battle. So, you know, how I handle it is I try not to necessarily go there. I do my job and I try and do it as good and as great as I can mm-hmm. so that it will never be denied. It's a philosophy for me is any door that I go through, I make sure that the door doesn't close behind me, but it stays open for other women sure. who are like me, which is which is really important. Tell me about your book. Yeah. When is it coming out? Oh, God, it's supposed to be out Mother's Day 2018, which is right now. And, Wait. Uh, I know. No, it's not Next out. Next week. Yeah, but it's not out. It's, it's okay. with uh, by Doubleday. They're an imprint of Penguin Random House Canada. And um, it's called Gold Medal. I'm still working on the, the subtitle, but it's mm-hmm. been... Um, it's been a t- it was acquired two years ago, and I thought I'd be done writing it by, na- by now. 
but I'm understanding that writing is very cathartic and it's mm. my therapy as well. So, you know, the elevator pitch essentially is, so gold medal is about my mother's and my story. So it's our early story together. So it really chronicles the first 10 years of my life, which gives you insight about who I am as an athlete. So it's the foundation of who I am as an athlete. So every athlete that any journalist or reporter will talk to, they'll give you their, their public face. So LeBron will have his public face. But LeBron is probably a very, you know, more complex person than any of us will ever know as mm -hmm. people who just maybe watch him or are a fan of him or cover him, right? So it's really much peeling back the whole um, athlete part of me and showing you who I am, my foundation. My foundation has to deal with my mother's immigration story, which was very... Um, very haphazard and very just random the way she got to Canada. Um, she overstayed her stay, my mother did, which essentially made her an illegal immigrant here, mm. right? So it's she had no paper. She had no, no nothing to prove that she had a right to be here. And so that made our, and I was born here, right? So she, she had me while she was here. Um, so it's really talking about our life together and but my mom had a dream and she had a goal right so she wasn't here just kind of sitting on her butt she was working her tail off but that put me at a risk that put my other siblings at risk right we didn't have this typical um you know white picket fence type of childhood mm -hmm. and i've never ever well i never talked about it while i was competing i never discussed it in interviews but it's really taking back the veil and kind of informing you on, you know, that, that kind of mother daughter story, that immigrant story, which is very quintessential to being Canadian. Right. Mm -hmm. But more than anything, it's, it's weaving that story, my mother's story with the sport story and how you can all of a sudden be on this podium, hear the Canadian national anthem. And to me, hearing the Canadian national anthem isn't simply hearing it. Right. There's my mother literally dragged me, to this reality and to this way of life. And had she not put herself, sacrificed herself, essentially I would not have even had this this life. When is it coming out now? Oh, Bavna, my editor, who's probably listening because she, you know, she's so supportive of everything that I do. Um, we are hoping next year. Okay. But this is what happens. I'm a first-time author, and I didn't want a ghostwriter. So I truly believe that no one can tell your story like you, right? Yeah. So I lived it. I felt it. I, you know, I know my siblings. I know my. I know what it's like to, you know, be displaced and not have a home. So I kind of feel like. I want to tell, I want to use my words. Mm -hmm. I want to be the one to tell it. So there's no ghostwriter, which slows the process down tremendously. Sure. Um, but I'm also realizing I'm tackling a lot of things that I've never shared before, which is very, um, it's, it's very hard. I have my family's full blessing and full confidence to reveal as much as I, as I'm comfortable revealing, but it's also like, Whoa, when you see something on the page, you understand like, this is the biggest publisher in Canada that is going to be putting out this book across the country. And, Mrs. Arthur is my third grade teacher will probably read it, right? Mrs. Miss Sales will read it. My mom will read it. So it's understanding that I'm putting myself and my family's mm. story out there. But it's, it, at the end of the day, it's a very triumphant story and I'm very, very proud of it. But as I'm reading, other things come up that I have not dealt with and have not faced, mm. which slows me down because then I have to like catch my breath. And then I have to put it away for maybe a, a week or two or, or a month while I'm in Australia and then have the oomph right and the courage to really face it again and so i think that's what's really slowed down the process talking about track and talking about athens is, is really really great yeah. right talking about your mother being abused is not is not the easiest thing to do and to put on the page but i'm doing it will you come back here when it's when it's written will you have me of course all right let's do yeah, it yeah, yeah. let's Abs do it absolutely let's do it thank you so much thank you i appreciate it thanks for your time
before I let you go, um, just want to tell everybody what is happening uh, here on the podcast. So again, thank you so much to everyone for listening. Um, if you want to hear more interviews, uh, check this podcast out and many others. Uh, you could go to girthradio.com or kareemkanji.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at kareemkanji. Uh, pretty to work at people. Do you want people to follow you? Yeah, um, you should okay, follow right. me. Tweet me. Let me know that you found this or Instagram me at Perdita Felician. Just try and type it in Google. It will pop up, I'm sure, if you can't spell it. But you probably can. There you go. And if you enjoyed this conversation, you really should check out episodes 1840 and 109. Uh, some dude, Morgan Campbell, uh, <laughs> one of the smartest um, journalists, uh, if not in Toronto, across, across Canada. Uh, upcoming um interview i have with jeremiah brown you know jeremiah i think he's a former olympic medalist and he is now an author of a book called four-year olympian Uh, he'll be here in studio to chat about uh his journey uh and again pretty to thank you so much thanks grim i appreciate it